we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A new world order. Child sex trafficking. The deep state is trying to destroy Donald Trump's presidency. Loose the battle plans of heaven. It's all about control. Broadcasting live to the world now. It's the weekend vigilante, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. I'm really excited to have on a guest I have not had on before, and I want to jump right into the program. And before I do, on Friday, we had a draw for the True Legends, the giveaway. Congratulations to Dennis Tumlin of Marietta, Georgia, on being the winner of this True Legends grand prize giveaway. Once again, there's nine more prizes to be drawn. And all this week, I'll be picking two names a day for the book package. So I'm really excited about that. Those are signed books from Steve Quayle, Tom Horn, myself. It's all put together in a package. So that's books and the newest DVD sets. And I want to jump right into the show. Speaking of exciting, my guest today, I have not had him on before. He's probably best known to those in the ancient astronaut subject through his many appearances on Coast to Coast. And one of my personal favorites about Michael Heiser is he is willing to debate anyone on any of Zachary Sitchin's work, which is, <laughs> I got to tell you, that's my personal favorite prolifically astute scholar. He can literally do translation work in roughly a dozen ancient languages, among them Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, Egyptian hieroglyphs, Phoenician, Moabite. I mean, I could go on and on all day. He is the author of two books I've recently read, One Unseen Realm, which I want to have him back to talk about that, but the one I want him to talk about today is Reversing. I used to call it Hermon, but who knew it was Hermon? Reversing Herman. It is such a pleasure for me to welcome him for the first time. Hopefully, one of many more to come. It is Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Heiser, welcome to the program, sir. It is a pleasure. Well, thank you, Sheila. I'm, I'm just glad to be here. I'm grateful for the invitation. Well, I'm just really looking forward to discussing your work. Now, they say sometimes a book is all in the title. And I got to hand it to you, Reversing Her Mind, your title of your book, that right there is very compelling and intriguing. First of all, you got to talk about how you came up with this very interesting and quite intriguing title. Yeah, it uh, it's a reference to Mount Hermon uh, in the Old Testament. And of course, as people will find out if they read the book, it shows up in the New Testament as well. So Hermon in Jewish tradition, Second Temple Jewish literature, and, and that term means intertestamental, you know, when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, this in-between period. This was the place where uh, books like Enoch, uh, First Enoch specifically, and other Enochian books, in other words, books that sound like Enoch, these ancient texts written at this time. This is the location where they have the watchers descending and hatching their plot, taking an oath among themselves to corrupt humanity. And, and in case watchers uh, is not a familiar term uh, to the audience, this is standard Second Temple Jewish 
lingo for the sons of God uh, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It, it is a term that shows up in the Old Testament a few times in Daniel chapter 4, but for the most part, it's more common in that intertestamental period. So, Hermon is where they they go and they you know enact their plot. And so, reversing Hermon says to the reader that there's threads in biblical theology specifically associated with the Messiah that telegraph the idea that the Messiah was not just coming here to cure the death problem, okay, from Genesis 3, the fall, and cure the estrangement from God problem, also you know, back to Genesis 3, but he has also come to reverse the effects of what the Watchers did when they got here. That Jews in the intertestamental period would have expected their Messiah to do and say and be uh, specific things to rectify that problem as well, the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 problem. And so, reversing Hermon is about how the Messiah, how Jesus does that. You know, you, you touched on something, and I, I'll just take it one step further. The ancient scholars who translated the Hebrew into the Greek Septuagint, the Bible that we're assuming Jesus and the disciples read, they understood Isaiah predicting the return of the giants, the monsters, at the advent to the destruction of Babylon in the final age. So one of the things I've always kind of questioned, and maybe Michael, you can help me with this. Why is, first of all, I got to ask you this, why is Enoch not canonical? Because it was certainly important to Peter and Jude, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and if people read the book, you're going to find out that Enoch's content is alluded to or assumed. Really, it's floating around in the head of various New Testament authors, not just Peter and Jude, but Peter and Jude are you know, sort of give the most specific and explicit uh, allusions and quotations uh, of Enoch. The, re the reason it's not canonical is it's really a twofold thing, and, and it relates in part, you know, to this whole divide between the the Catholic and the Protestant canon. I mean, we we have the canon we do as Protestants if you're not a Catholic, because after the Reformation, the decision was made to go back to books in the Old Testament that could be that you could find evidence that they had been written in Hebrew. So that was a big litmus test, and of course, that was the, the litmus test, you know, one of them for the Jewish community in antiquity. And we don't have any. Uh, material in Hebrew from the book of, of what scholars call First Enoch, what is properly known as the Book of Enoch. There are actually three books of Enoch, but the the one everybody thinks of is actually the first one. So, you know, there there was no evidence uh, in in Hebrew for it. Now, if you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you you find fragments of the book, so it's very old. Fragmentary material goes back to 300 BC or so. And it's in Aramaic, which you know was the language of the the resident Jew in the first century. There were certain Jews that revered it. Uh, we know this from Qumran because they quoted as scripture. Now that's not to say every Jew thought that the Qumran sect certainly did. And that status, the, the, the quotation status, the fact that it was revered, you know, leaks into the early church period. There were certain church fathers, you know, who thought that, you know, the book should be, uh, you know, part of the Bible. But ultimately, you know, the Protestant decision was based on the, the, the lack of Hebrew material. And, you know, the, the second factor being that, you know, major church thinkers like Irenaeus and Tertullian, who thought the book should be in there, at the end of their lives, they, they acquiesced, you know, to the will of the masses. And, and what I mean by that is they were, they were content to assume that the Holy Spirit would lead the church and mass 
to the correct decision on recognizing which books should be considered sacred. And they were the losers. They were the, the distinct minority. And so, you know, there, you actually can find, you know, things that these guys wrote that more or less said, well, you know, we're, we're good with that. You know, we're, we're going to let the Holy Spirit guide and we're content. You know, we're, we're not going to, you know, persist and be factious over this. And, and you know, that, that's good enough. My view is that we should be reading the stuff that New Testament writers read, and frankly, Old Testament writers read. Because if we had that in our head, we would probably, this is just a wild guess, you know, call me crazy here, but if we read what they read, we would probably understand what they wrote a little bit more, a little bit better. And that is, you know, part and parcel, one of the arguments of the book, Reversing Hermon, that this material was important, and it helped New Testament writers in their thinking and to articulate what they did write you know, in, in the canonical books we have, uh, the Book of Enoch was influential in helping them articulate certain things. And so, if we're not familiar with it, we miss that. We, we miss what they were trying to convey to us, which would be at the very best an unfortunate thing. And at, at the very worst, we wind up making passages say things that the writer didn't intend them to say. This idea of reversing the evil of the Watchers. Well, how do we do that if we don't even know a a starting (laughs) point? If we don't know the story. (laughs) don't know the the story. (laughs) Bingo. That's really it because, you know, if you go through the book, you know, and I I know you've read the book, you know, and you can bear witness to this. There are just things lurking under the surface uh, in a number of respects in the New Testament that really, again, telegraph you know, what the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was and how Jesus fulfills that. And, and there's a lot of theology there. There's a lot of good biblical theology that if you can pick up on the threads and, and understand the references and the phrases and what they mean, you know, why, why they're even there, uh, you're, you're going to miss a, a good bit of theological understanding that, you know, on, on the one hand, it, I'm not saying, well, if you don't know the book of Enoch, you're going to miss the gospel. No, that, that that's a caricature. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is as a Christian, you know, as someone who, who professes, you know, to take scripture seriously and, and assign words like inspired to it, you ought to want to know what it actually says. And, and what it actually means. And, and we need to stop paying lip service to this idea of interpreting the Bible in context. You're either going to be serious about that or you're not. And in Unseen Realm, my earlier book, and, and this one, that, that is the uncomfortable question. You know, one of two uncomfortable questions I can think of. Are you serious when you talk about interpreting the Bible in context? Well, let's find out. And Enoch is part of this context. It's part of the matrix of ideas that informed the biblical writers into, you know, help them say what, what they said. So you either want to understand what they wrote, you know, what God prompted them to write. You either want to understand that correctly or not. You know, why do you want to impose some other context on it or strip it, you know, strip the, the, the ancient context from it and pretend you know, that you're, you're reading scripture. Why do you want to do that? It's just a fundamental thing. Well, and let me ask you this. Why do you think it is that you could set a hundred pastors in a room and theologically, they'll just disagree every time on little nuances? I mean, what is with that? Well, this, this will be unpopular with pastors, many pastors in your audience, but it's the truth, okay? And it, it's not meant to be pejorative, but you have to understand what seminary is for, 
Um, you have to understand what an MDiv degree is. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people in congregations do not understand this. And frankly, a lot of pastors don't understand it. But there's a reason why a Master of Divinity degree that you would get, every, you know, pastors, this is the standard degree that you come out with and then you, you go pastor a church. There, there's a reason why that used to be called a Bachelor's of Divinity in the 19th and early 20th century. And the reason is, is because it's your first introduction. It's a first degree. It's a first exposure to anything that sort of looks like the academic study of the Bible. And it's a mile wide and an inch deep, because when you go to seminary, you have to take a few courses in Old Testament, New Testament, take at least one language class in both, at least in the old days you did. A lot of schools are dumping their language programs now. But you take some theology, you take Christian ed, you take administrative stuff, you take counseling, you get, a, you get your feet wet in all of the relevant areas. And then you come out with a, with a degree they now call Master of Divinity, because most people who go to seminary already have a bachelor's degree. So they changed the title so that it wouldn't be insulting to get a second bachelor's degree. Yale University actually has a nice historical description of, of why the name changed. But that it, it is what it is. But a lot of people in churches think that, oh, my pastor went to seminary. He knows everything now. And they don't. They don't know a lot of things. It just depends what they're exposed to in their classes. And if they're first and second year classes, it's not very deep. And and that's okay because pastors do know more than most of their the people in their churches, and they can teach them. You're supposed to acquire the skills necessary to feed a congregation. And they can by and large do that if they're diligent, if they're good students after they graduate. But it makes pastors, I think, unnecessarily, unfortunately, insecure, because they think if they say, oh, I don't know the answer to that question, or, you know, I, I, I'll have to look at that. I got to go check. I, I never learned that. If they right. say things like that, then that, those are chinks in their armor, and, and they, they feel they have to come across as the, as the Bible know-it-all for right. the sake of their <laughs> congregations, and people expect that. And it, it's a vicious circle. I mean, I, and I, I can sort of sit back and and say these things because, you know, I was a professor for a lot of years. I know what goes on in seminary. I, I still teach, you know, distance ed, you know, seminary courses. I know I know the curriculum. I've, I've designed curriculums. I know what this is about. And it serves its purpose well if the expectations put upon someone are reasonable. But a lot of, a lot of cases, they're just not. They're, they're human insecurities. They're unrealistic expectations. A lot of pastors, they don't stay up with their languages. And, and again, to, in today's climate, you can graduate with a seminary degree without ever taking a Greek or Hebrew class. Uh, they, they don't know a whole lot. There's a lot they just don't know. They should just own that and then be diligent students to, to stick with it and, and learn things over a lifetime. When, when I became a Christian, this is no exaggeration. I had no spiritual background. I had heard of Jesus, and I had heard of Adam, Eve, and Noah. That was literally, literally, in the most literal terms, the extent of my biblical knowledge as a 16-year-old. And and because God wanted me to take a certain path, I was forced to do things like take classes in 12 dead languages. Okay, it just, you know, really, and if I'd have known better, I probably would have quit. (laughs) You know, but that's just what it is. It, it's a calling. This this is my little contribution within the, this big thing we call the kingdom of God. And that's the only difference. The real problem is that people don't study. They won't devote the time. They'll just slam the door on what they have, even by people who are in the professional ministry. And they spend 30 hours of their week counseling people. They spend 30 hours of their week, I don't know, you know, doing administrative stuff. You know, the 
church situations trap pastors who want to study, but I'll be blunt about it. Most pastors really don't. They don't want to put 30 hours into into scholarship. If you don't think scholarship is work, then you're not doing it. Uh, Just by definition, it's a lot of work. Pastors can't spend the time they'd love to spend, you know, learning scripture and, and, and doing these things because their time is, is just sucked away into, into all sorts of other things. This is why I, I love to give people the breadcrumb trails. I love to give people sources, primary sources, high scholarship, journal articles. People, a lot of people don't even know what an academic journal is. You know, their, their study is Strong's Concordance and the Internet. I'm not saying that to, to denigrate them because if that's all you're ever exposed to, well, then that's your frame of reference. So what I try to do in, in my books, I want people to, to be exposed to that material. And my task, the only thing I actually do contribute here, is I can put it into comprehensible English for the non-specialist. I can make it digestible and then show you where to drill down, what the good sources are. Because I'm not content with people getting what they're getting on a Sunday morning or, you know, from like internet sources. There's so much material out there that's so much better. It's from dissertations. It's really high-level stuff. Most of it's written for other geeks, and it's hard to understand unless you're part of that world. So I'm trying to make it comprehensible to people who care, people wow. who really want to know their Bible. That's the magic. It's not really magic, but that's the magic. And again, that's the dirty little secret of what I do. Yeah, you mentioned the word digestible. Indeed, you did that with this book. Now, explain how the Watchers and the Antichrist, what is the overlap or the connection between the Watchers and the Antichrist? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around this, so explain this for us. Yeah, there, there's a good bit of, of material that makes a connection between the Antichrist figure and, and what goes on with the Watchers, makes that not only possible, but really makes it a, a serious part of the expectation. So if we can put it again in, in sort of summary terms and people can get the, the nuts and bolts details in the book, there was, a, there was a profile of the Antichrist before you even had Christianity. And that sounds a little odd, but we have to understand what I mean by that and what, what they were thinking. There was a profile of the great enemy, the great end times enemy of the Messiah that had already been worked out in Old Testament thinking. Because obviously the Old Testament is talking about a future Messiah, and the, the future Messiah is going to have an enemy. Well, what does that look like? And part of that profile the way it gets talked about in the intertestamental period actually gets linked back to certain passages and certain demonic figures, certain satanic figures that go by very specific names like Belial or Beliar or Mastema in Old Testament texts and also Second Temple Jewish texts. A lot of that, the profile of the great enemy was, was linked to these figures. And these figures in turn are part of a Second Temple Jewish literary corpus, a matrix of ideas, that includes connections back to Babylon specifically. And that's important because part of the Babylonian mess for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And, and you say, well, where do you get that? Well, you get that if you understand the original the, the original Mesopotamian context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the story of the Apkalu, 
before the flood, after the flood. And people can read the book, you know, for this. But basically, there's a story about certain divine beings before the flood that have this advanced knowledge, and then they want to preserve that knowledge through the flood because the higher gods want to destroy humanity, and the Apkalu don't like that idea. And so after the flood. The Apkalu are described as, quote, being of human descent, whereas before they're completely divine. Afterwards, they're, they're only partly divine. They, they're of human descent. They're two-thirds Apkalu. These, these are actual references in cuneiform tablets. Gilgamesh is one of them. He is called the Lord of the Apkalu. He's two-thirds divine. He's also a giant. And their knowledge, not coincidentally, what they're teaching humans are ideas picked up by Enoch that were that was forbidden knowledge that led to human corruption and depravity. So there's an original Mesopotamian, specifically Babylonian context to all of this, that if you're a Jew living in the intertestamental period, you've heard this. And Babylon is the big bad guy of the Old Testament. And it's no coincidence that the, that the Antichrist figure in Revelation is linked to Babylon. And and the links are actually more specific than that. You you get links back into the Belos story. This was one of the the giants, you know, who who helped build the the Tower of Babel and stuff like this. So there's a certain, again, set of ideas that when a Jew in this period thought about the great end times enemy of of the coming Messiah, that there's going to be conflict here when the Messiah comes that they thought in terms of, well, part of this profile for the, ba- the great bad guy at the end is not just that he's linked to Satan, satanic stuff, but he's specifically linked to the mess of Babylon. And part of that was the, the giants and the Apkalu and the fallen sons of God and all that stuff. So in reversing Hermon, I, I go into specific texts that talk about that. And, and there is something you know, to this idea that there are, there are connections between the Antichrist and these other things. Well, and there's really a connection, though, also to Babylon with esoteric knowledge. You know, it's always sure. interesting to me that it seems like we're looking at a reemergence of these ancient godmen, the Golden Age, which the occult has been trying to do for thousands of years. Is that, I guess, a recursion of the Nephilim? I mean, because they've stowed away this esoteric knowledge you know, some say, oh, Ham's grandchildren built Babylon and the Egyptian empire, building something other than God wanted in the earth. I mean, it's interesting that Nimrod started out as a man and what discovered maybe a new way to transmute into a type of God man. Who knows, really? But it's that's an interesting tie in, though, isn't it? Nimrod, biblically, you know, he's called a Gibor, and there are some who say, well, that, that means he was a giant. Well, you know, David's called a Gibor, and frankly, God is called a Gibor in Isaiah chapter 9, you know, mighty God El Gibor, okay? So that Gibor itself doesn't, doesn't give you the ammunition to draw such conclusions, but in Second Temple literature, Nimrod is, is a bit more than that. He is linked because of Babylon, okay? It's a clear, there's a clear link between Nimrod and Babylon, because of the of the association with Babylon, Nimrod becomes part of the way we think about the great end times enemy. You know, the case in, in my book is not that we have to filter the Antichrist through Nimrod, you know, mythology or Nimrod legends of the Second Temple period. All I'm saying is that look, there are some connections here that Jews of the day took seriously. And they played off those things, again, in, in the way, in, in the things in, in Jesus' life and what he does and, and, and the things that other New Testament writers say that want to telegraph the message that the, the, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is going to reverse this and is going to combat it. He's going to win. And 
and this is just part of, of how they were thinking about who the characters are. We, you know, we don't have an instruction book, you know, to know the, the specifics of how this, this kind of thing plays out. You know, I, I, I don't assign high truth quality to, to a lot of, you know, Jewish lore about Nimrod or, or giants or whatever. I mean, some of it, because it does leak into the New Testament, I think deserves more serious consideration than others. And also, it, you know, it, it touches in the, the Old Testament, too. So to me, it's not an all-or-nothing kind of thing. It's, it's somewhere in between. What I'm interested in is how is what's said consistent with Scripture, and how does Scripture repurpose what's said in between the, the, the Testaments? And there are definite goings-on there in, in how New Testament writers wrote about the Antichrist figure that certainly dip into that stuff. And and reversing Hermon, the, the the specific chapter on Antichrist and Nephilim stuff, I try to I try to ferret that stuff out, separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, but there there are connections there, uh, you know, to be made. Well, the, it's Mount Hermon, as you say, I mean, it was a, a holy site as far back as the old Babylonian yeah. period, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hermon was associated with the. You know, by the Babylonians, the you know, the early Mesopotamians as the dwelling place of the gods, a plural, which of course would have included at least in some periods of Mesopotamian thinking, uh, would have included the Anunnaki. Anunnaki. Uh, the, the the story of the Anunnaki is is mixed in Babylonian literature. In some texts, they're they sort of have a high status, and they would be you know living on Mount Hermon, you know, because that's the the, the realm of the gods. Um, it, it's there, but then in other texts, the the Anunnaki are low level gods of the underworld, Sheol. Uh, they they got a demotion, and 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 we don't have enough literature from the Mesopotamians to know why that change occurred, but it's very discernible uh, depending on what thing you read. But Hermon is part of that picture, and, and so it, again, it shouldn't surprise us. There you go again. I'm sure some listeners are thinking, why should I care about Enoch? You know what, what you know, okay, the New <laughs> Testament writers read it, big deal. Well, here's the thing. Let me and let me just illustrate it with Peter and Jude. Peter and Jude, when they reference the, the Genesis six event, the angels that sin, and by the way, there is no other candidate in the Old Testament for that phrase. Well, what about the third of the angels, Satan's rebellion, taking a third of the angels with him? Scripture alert, there is no passage in the Bible that describes a primeval rebellion where Satan rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. Zero. The closest you get to that is Revelation 12, which is at the end of the Bible, okay? Revelation 12, and if you read Revelation 12, there the third of the angel talk, which is the only place it occurs, is associated with the first coming, the birth of the Messiah, which I would suggest was well after creation, okay? So there's no primeval, you know, thing going on here, you know, with with this this language. But nevertheless, Peter and Jude refer to the angels that sinned, and they're kept in chains of gloomy darkness. Again, there's no other candidate other than Genesis 6, 1 through 4. But these details aren't in the Old Testament. What do you mean, kept in chains of gloomy darkness? Where, where's that in the Old Testament? Well, it isn't in there. It is in Enoch. And you say, well, why should I care? Well, because you have to ask the question, where does the book of Enoch get it? The book of Enoch gets it from the original Mesopotamian story that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was written to respond to specific points of Babylonian theology. And what that means is that Enoch, first Enoch, and, and other books in between the Testaments, preserved the original context of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They preserved it. And Peter and Jude get to dip into that original context because they are using and reading and paying attention to 
the book of Enoch. So the Enochian stuff is important for helping us. It sounds anachronistic, but that stuff's important for helping us read the Old Testament better because it preserves the original context. The writer of Genesis just assumes that you know this stuff. I mean, again, scripture alert, the Bible is not an exhaustive repository of every event that's ever happened and everything that's knowable. It's not designed to be that. Yeah. Every book has a, has a specific purpose in mind, a specific thing to communicate. The, the writer is, he has an agenda, and agenda is not a bad word. He has something he wants to say to a particular audience on a specific occasion. It's not an exhaustive repository. So the writer assumes stuff all the time because they're writing to their own audience of their own time. We just you know lose, we have a gap there between us and them. But this is one of those cases, and we actually get it kept and preserved in the Enochian material. And, and that is very significant, that... that you know, Peter and Jude are only getting it from one place. And, and it's important to recognize that because that should compel us to, to ask this question. Well, what else you know, might there be there you know, in, in, that, in that intertestamental stuff that the New Testament writers knew and we don't? What, what else is there? What else is there? And, and that goes back to what you just said about Benai Elohim. I mean, people think that refers to mortal men. No, it refers to divine beings. It has to. And you just said, likewise, exactly. the Hebrew words translated sons of God in the passage. But I guess through the eyes of the Jewish scholars who translated the Old Testament to Greek, and that was 200 years before the birth of Jesus, they clearly understood that the Nephilim were giants. Uh, uh, you're, you're being nice. I'm going to be less nice <laughs> <laughs> about this because, look, you either want to interpret the Bible in context or you don't. Stop pretending. Okay, if you if you know the Apkalu story from Mesopotamia, and, and we're blessed because of the work of Cuneiform scholars since 2010. There's a very particular article by, written by a guy named Amar Anus, who lives in Estonia. Okay, He decided, hey, I, I need to go back and look at all the Cuneiform stuff associated with the flood with a specific eye toward, can I find counterparts to the stuff in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 about this divine transgression, giants, and all this stuff? Can I find that? Well, yeah, he did, and he published it. In 2010, in an article called On the Origin of the Watchers, every element of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, sons of God, human women, giant offspring, you know, depravity, the whole bit, every element is found in the Apkalu story, every one. And, and Gilgamesh is kind of an interesting character in connection here because Gilgamesh is actually mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls Book of the Giants right. in connection with all this stuff. In other words, they knew about it in, in antiquity. They knew about it in the intertestamental period. We just don't. But the, the work of recent scholars has brought all this stuff out so that if we know that story and then we read Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and say, oh, well, this is just bad marriages between humans, we are intentionally violating the original context that is the reason that these four verses are even in Genesis. It's a willful decision to read those verses out of their context. That's what you got. And so if, if you're going to take the Sethite view, if you're going to take some other view, you are intentionally turning your back on the original context of these four verses. If, you're ha if you have a, a really nice Genesis commentary that you really like, and that's an otherwise good commentary. If it's written after 2010, when it comes to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it is by definition out of date and obsolete. It's just that simple. And there's no way, there is no way to defend 
a completely human view, in other words, a non-supernaturalist view of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and be honest with its original context, it can't be done. And I think it doesn't help that every other day we kind of see a new, you know, there's a new spin on some new Marvel movie that, you know, is <laughs> the the new Titans, the return of the Titans, the new Greek tale of the Titans. I mean, it just, it kind of goes on and on to twist a lot of young people. You know, they actually think like Gilgamesh is an actual superhero. It's getting well, really bizarre. No, that stuff is really important. And commentary on that stuff, like, like you do and you know, other websites do, is really important. And I'll say this, and this is why I, th- I think that. If you pay attention to this kind of material, like Marvel, and what they're, what they're doing, and, and you're into the esoteric stuff, it's being promoted through mass media a lot. What it does is it conditions people, especially the, the, the up-and-coming generation, it conditions people to certain ideas. So the, the issue isn't, you know, are we parsing what Marvel's doing completely correctly and are we mapping it over to, to biblical theology correctly or, or are we assuming too much about it mapping over? That, th- those are incidental questions. It's important because if you pay attention, people are getting conditioned to certain ideas and those ideas are consistent with a few very important things. They take hold of important terminology. They redefine words like God. They redefine words like theism, Christ, Jesus, salvation, atonement, redemption. If you have an audience that is used to thinking about really high-level terms and concepts like, why are we here? What is God like? Where did God come? You know, all all of these big picture, high level questions. If you are conditioned to think differently about those things than, you know, sort of in in a scriptural coherent way, that matters because we all know that people who control the language are the ones who, by and large, are going to win the argument. And and so we we really have a battle for the mind going on at a very significant level uh, because we're People's minds are, are not being trained, uh, you know, to think that oh, Gilgamesh is—he was real and he was a superhero. No, no, they're, they're not. Nobody's going to watch the Guardians of the Galaxy and think, well, there must have been a Groot, you know, or something <laughs> like. That. Okay, no, that—that's ridiculous. But what they are being conditioned to think about are things like alien seeding of life yes. in the universe, panspermia, or even again this this sort of direct you know, genetic, you know, relationship, you know, this cohabitation idea, you know, and well, that, that, that must be how we got there. And if those are the bad guys in the Bible, well, then the Bible must be bad. You know, why, why would the Bible, you know, speak ill of, of this kind of thing? Because without it, we wouldn't have life, you know, in other words, you just control the narrative, you just control the vocabulary. And if you do that, you influence how people think. And uh, on one level, all you need to do, if you're an evil mastermind, all you need to do is get them to reject truth. You don't need, necessarily need to get them to adopt anything else in its place. Sometimes people will. But it, if they reject the truth, well, that, that's good. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll call that a win. We'll put that in the W column. They don't have to adopt anything in particular. They're just kept from seeing the scriptural story for what it, it is. Good enough. We'll call it a day. And, and so people's minds are being made more malleable, made more accepting, not of cartoonish things, but of big picture, high level thoughts and concepts. That's how you move the herd. Okay. That is how you influence the masses. When I was writing, I write fiction too. When I was writing the portent, 
which is the sequel to The Facade, I actually sat down, and this is how I thought about the book. If I were the villain, okay, in, in my story, if I were the evil mastermind, you know, the, a, a cosmic being, what is my end game? And then how do I get there? And, and how do I get people to think they're embracing something they love? Like, like the Bible, like the biblical story, a, a literal you know, understanding of the Bible. You get to keep all that. How do I get them to embrace the thing that they want to embrace? But when they do it, they're actually embracing something altogether different. How do I make it look like what they want it to be and not be that at all? If you can control the narrative and control the vocabulary, control the thought process, how people think about certain things, and then you know, link it back into stuff they want, you can do that. And that's what pop culture does with the alien narrative. You know, we, we can laugh at Giorgio's hair all day long you know, on Ancient <laughs> Aliens. But the content of that show is getting people to process certain things a certain way. So you can dismiss it as the cartoon that it is. But if there's one little factoid in there that made you think, that's what's desirable. That's the effect of it. And if you get you know, that a dozen times over, 50 times over, 100 times over, this is how you change thinking. Well said. Very well said. Well, and that is so fascinating to me that they will talk about absolutely anything. Pick your Sumerian gods and goddesses, the Anunnaki, the Ajiji, I mean, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incas, some kind of Sumerian extraterrestrial race, of course, that seeded the planet. We were created as a slave civilization by another race from another planet, don't you know? They will go on and on about any Sumerian god, goddess, Nibiru, pick your deity of the week. They will not talk about any biblical narrative. Nothing. But the way they avoid the Bible, like the plague, is almost telling, isn't it? Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're going to be very selective. You know, they're, they're going to let Zechariah Sitchin be your Bible guy or <laughs> Barry Downing or, you know, whoever the latest nitwit is, you know, in, in this area. You know, you're right. They, they will never bring, you know, I, I guess I have to give them a little. I, I've been asked to be an ancient alien, you know, three, four times. And my answer to them is always, I send them the link to my experience with the History Channel back in 2003. <laughs> and my answer is, I'd love to be on your show. Oh, thank you for the invitation. This, is, this would be exciting. Can you promise me in writing that you won't do this to me? Link, click. And that ends the conversation. <laughs> if you go to my website and put in History Channel in the search, okay, you will find this little story. Um, yeah, put in the word censor uh, in there and you'll find it. What happened was I got invited by the History Channel to uh, you know, be on some show. It, when it debuted, it was called UFOs and the Bible. UFOs and the Bible. You know, will you be on this? And, and so I, I'm, a, I'm a grad student. It's like, you know, hey, I could get a free trip to Los Angeles. It's kind of a vacation. Well, let, you know, let, let's do that. Let's do that. So I went out and I did two hours worth of, of an interview for this. But <laughs> what, what people don't, you know, sort of get in unless they read this is I got the questions ahead of time. And they were very obviously leading questions. And it was very, it was very evident of how they wanted, to, wanted me to answer certain questions about the Bible. So I emailed them back. I said, look, you know, I, I know you probably bought the ticket. You know, I'm sorry, but I'm just not going to be able to give you what you want. I'm, I'm basically going to debunk all this stuff and maybe we shouldn't do this. No, 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 no. We want all the views, you know. Okay. I'll, so I, I went out, did the, uh, the spot. 
And so you have to sign, you know, your, your waiver form and all that. And they say, okay, a year from now, the show is going to, I mean, it's going to be on air. Now I was a dummy. Okay. But there were people smarter than me that, that also got interviewed for this. One of them insisted that he be able to audio tape the interview that they did with him. And so they, they consented to do that, which now surprises me, but they did. So what he did was he took the audio of the original interview, had it transcribed and sat on it. Then when the show came out, he took that audio, transcribed it, and then he put them side by side. And you could see where they literally had spliced something from one sentence and put it to another sentence, like two sentences later. They, they hacked the interview wow. with this guy. And, and I got off easily because I never made the cut. I was not actually in the show, which by that time changed in title to UFOs in the Bible. So they cut me out entirely. I, I apparently didn't give them anything that they could hack, <laughs> which I told them I wouldn't. I wasn't going to be able to do anyway. But Hugh Ross was in this for, from uh, Reasons to Believe Ministry. They made Hugh Ross sound like he, he entertained the thought that the, the, the two men in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels there might have been extraterrestrials. Oh. You know, it's just, it, it was a hack job. And, and, I got off easy because I, I, they couldn't do it to me because I just I didn't give them anything. So now, again, when I get the invitation, I, I wrote all that description up in detail. I send the History Channel that link or whoever it is, and, and that kills the conversation. You know, folks, again, newsflash, the History Channel, the Ancient Aliens show, is not interested in giving you information. What they're interested in is getting an audience so that they can sell to advertisers and make a lot of money. Yeah. That is what they're about. They are not about serious research and information. They just aren't. If they are, anybody want to challenge me on that, get it in writing that they won't do that, and I'll be on the show. And I'm never going to get that. Well, Steve Quayle coined something, and I always butcher it, but it's something to the effect of the greatest cover-up of history is the cover-up of history. And I think it's really indicative of some of the high-level operations that go to seemingly great lengths to hide certain things. You have high-level government secrecy, the Smithsonian. What's your take on all that? The Smithsonian thing is a real is really, to me, a mixed bag. And, and what I mean by that is I don't really believe that there was a systematic, you know, coordinated effort, you know, on the Smithsonian apart to cover up, you know, giant races or anything like that. But that is not to say that the Smithsonian never did it in specific examples. I'd have no trouble believing that there would have been people in the 19th century, early 20th century that didn't like a particular find in, in this respect and just, just didn't want to deal with the way people would respond to it. And so things get shelved. Right, that, that's a little bit different, again, than a coordinated conspiracy. Because if you actually go back and you read the Bureau of Ethnography report published you know, in, in this time period of the Smithsonian on the mound builders, you're going to find references to giant skeletons that were found. You know, you know, unusually tall, six, seven, eight feet, whatever they are, okay? You know, something in, the, in, in that range. You're going to find that. And that's, that's a little different than saying they're races because, frankly, you'd, we have those now. You know, we, we have a certain percentage of the population that are just going to be in that range. But if I'm a Smithsonian guy 
And I know that, okay, well, we, we find these, we might find, you know, a family, we might find, you know, one of these, you know, that this site or that site or a collection of sites, because, you know, you're just going to have people like that. But I just don't even want to hear anybody if we publish this. I don't want to hear anything about biblical narratives in the Bible and Genesis. I, I don't even want to hear it. So we're not going to give this any time. We're not going to give it the time of day. I, I think that could happen. I certainly think that would be reasonable. In other, in other words, it's just, it's a point of irritation. But now, if we move now to the, to the 21st century, now to even suggest that anyone at the Smithsonian would do that even once gets thrown out. It's it's like like the Smithsonian people are 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 not human anymore. They don't have human impulses. They don't have human irritation. Uh, the, look, these references are in the in the bureau report, and so the question is very normal: Where are the skeletons? Yes, that's the one. Okay, that that's that's a perfectly reasonable question, and and if I'm asking that, if you know, it, it doesn't mean that I think that there were whole races. I just want to know where are the skeletons. I could ask the Smithsonian, look, if, if you just produced the, the things that are referenced in the report and, you know, you put them out there and we got the original field reports and all that and any other, you know, analysis that was done, you could probably, you know, clear this up for a lot of people and, and you'd be done with it. So why don't you do that? I think the answer to that question is either still, we just don't even want to get into the conversation or two, we don't know where they are. It's actually a fact. There have been some, some real famous examples of this where stuff gets lost in museums. And, and in warehouses and stuff like that, they literally don't know where they put it. You know, I could give you examples in Egyptology of manuscripts that, that were very famous. And, oh, we found like the other half of it in, in a drawer. You know, some guy was cleaning it out or a grad student happened to do that. Or we sold the desk and some, you know, that stuff happens because people forget where they put things. They don't make good records. They die. The only one that knows where it is dies. You know, that just, that stuff just happens. So on the other side of it, it's like, look, it, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to think that the Smithsonian and nobody at the Smithsonian ever did this. That's just not reasonable. You know, and the other side of it is that, again, there's like this, this black op that the Smithsonian, you know, there's totally coordinated in their efforts in this, you know, grand, you know, conspiratorial thing just for this reason. I think that's quite overstated as well. But it feeds, it feeds conspiracy thinking and it, lend, it lends some legitimacy, you know, to the idea because now the question becomes, well, why don't, why don't you put forth a really good effort to, to try to find that? So you're either unwilling or you're lazy or maybe you just don't like, you know, the thought that you're going to have to have this conversation. You know, what's the big deal? And when people resist that, it doesn't look good. Yeah, it doesn't look good at all. That is very true. Well, there's a lot of different scenarios that are, of course, depicted in the end times. There's the return of the Nephilim, the return of the God-men, the return of certain ages, certain deities, and, of course, a lot of variations on all of that. What's your take on those end time scenarios, and what do you think we can expect here in the last days? Yeah, I, I, I don't take Matthew 24 as a prophecy that we're going to get a return of, of Nephilim. And the reason for that is because there are no, if you look at the Greek text, there are no Greek terms there, important lemmas, you know, like specific vocabulary. There are, are no connections between that and Genesis 6. In other words, Matthew doesn't use Genesis 6 in Greek to write Matthew 24. So that, was, that would be one thing I would expect if he wanted readers to think 
specifically of of the Nephilim in, in, in those first four verses. The other is is that what what's said about as in the days of Noah in Matthew 24, there are actually four or five things that are said, and only one of them could conceivably, you know, the reference to marrying and inter, intermarriage, only, only that one can conceivably be linked to anything that's not normally human. In other words, all the other ones, you wouldn't even think of Nephilim or anything like that. So to me, it's not a good hermeneutic to take the one outlier and use it as a filter to interpret the whole passage, especially if there's no linguistic textual link back to Genesis 6-4 in the Septuagint. So those, those are two, I think, serious disconnects. I do think, though, that what Matthew 24 and other passages do point to, when you say God-men, uh, to me that's not a bad phrase, b- because, in other words, it's not a bad phrase to use to describe what I think we should be concerned about because if if we get to the, this point where we are not only manufacturing different species, but I, I this actually came up in my Twitter feed today. Um, I subscribe to some synthetic biology uh, Twitter accounts. The effort now is to try to synthetically make a human. Yeah, that is for those you know, of your listeners who might not understand the difference between synthetic biology and, and genetic manipulation. This isn't going in and altering parts of the of DNA and, and the gene code and stuff like that. This is literally making the human genome from scratch, fr- from the atomic level on up, literally making a human yourself. To me, that is traversing over into the Babel territory. You know, what, what's Babel really about? Why are people congregating in Babylon, you know, after the flood in, in defiance of what God asked them to do? Again, re- repeating the Edenic mandate. You know, what is the Tower? Uh, the Tower of Babylon was a ziggurat. Everybody in scholarship agrees on this. What's a ziggurat? A ziggurat is part of a temple complex. Why would you build a temple complex with a ziggurat if you were a Babylonian? It's because a ziggurat is the place where heaven intersects with earth. You are building a home on earth for the deity. You want it to come to you. You want it to reside with you. In other words, the Babel complex is a human effort to restore the Edenic situation on humanity's own terms. Okay, that takes you into transhumanism. That takes you into synthetic biology. Trying to recreate an Edenic utopia where there is no disease. We defeat death. We give ourselves superhuman characteristics, again, for longevity or or, or immortality or this or that specific ability. The effort to create an Edenic utopia apart from the way God wants to do it is the Babylon complex. And that's what I think we need to look for and watch out for when we talk about end times. Why? Not because of Matthew 24, but because the book of Revelation specifically links the beast, the end times, the great eschatological enemy with Babylon. Yeah, that's why. It, that that's not a mistake. It's not a thro- John's not sitting there writing Revelation. What should I call this? What should I call it? What should I call? It? I can't think of anything. Oh, let's call it Babylon. I haven't used that yet. No, it's intelligent. It's deliberate. It communicates certain ideas. So when I think of end times, I do think of stuff like a phony pseudo utopian program designed to displace the role of God and make us gods, this, this utopian Edenic restoration idea. 
Any effort to substitute that and eliminate God from the picture is the Babylonian complex, and that has something to do with end times, at least according to the book of Revelation. So that, that's where I think our attention should be focused on. But, you know, so, so in other words, if people are following me, the effort is not to create an army of, of, of Nephilim. Like, who's that going to fool? Oh, I just saw, you know, on CNN, a brigade of giants. Well, sign me up to be in favor of that. Nobody's going to be fooled by that. Okay, the Babylonian complex produces deception. If you're deceived by that, you're really dumb. Okay, honestly, you're just really dumb. But if if people come on on CNN and start talking about, doesn't the Bible say, you know, the, what a wonderful place Eden was? Didn't Jesus, you know, uh, heal people? Isn't it our destiny if, like Adam and Eve, God said, go be fruitful and multiply and make the rest of the world like Eden? You know, subdue the earth and you know bring it into conformity with with this wonderful place where God is. Shouldn't that, if that's our human destiny, God given human destiny, that's what we're trying to do. How can you oppose that? We're trying to defeat disease through these technologies. We're trying to defeat death through these technologies. We're trying to make ourselves divine. You stupid Christians, don't. Doesn't your own New Testament talk about glorification? Isn't this our destiny? Theosis? Okay, become more like Jesus was. We get the body that he had, and we're just trying to do what God wants us to do. Plug into the global brain. There you right. go. It, you know, that, that kind of marketing, and I'm not making that up, that, that's, that's Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, again, comes from an evangelical background. He's the founder of PayPal, and he's a big transhumanist guy. Um, you know, still professes to be a believer, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. But that is how this is going to be marketed, both to a secular audience and to people who are in the you know, the Christian religious orbit. Why are you trying to prevent us from doing the thing that God tasked humanity with to begin with? Right. That's so much more marketable. Again, if I were an evil marketer, I'd love that. Okay. <laughs> That's a whole lot easier than saying, you know, look out for the, the Nephilim army. You know, they're, they're really good guys, you know, be on our side. It, to me, that's totally incoherent where this has a lot of seductive power, you know, on the TV, the, a tragedy with disease and in your own life, somebody, you know, and love that, you know, look, they didn't have to die. Death is unnatural. It was unnatural in Eden. That's we're, we're trying to get back to this. This is a holy calling. Why are you resisting it? Wow. And when you really step back and take a macro view of what you just said, it's bone chilling and it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Why are you resisting this? After all, it's God's way. Wow. You nailed it when you said seduction, seducing spirits, right? Wow. Well, in the waning moments, what's your advice to Christians that are listening going forward, Michael? I, I do think we need – knowledge is important, but but it's only really one thing. You know, I again, I, I'm not signing my kids and my grandkids up for persecution. I'm not a moron, all right? Yeah. But on one level, the post-Christian culture that we're experiencing, again, where, where Christianity is being marginalized and eventually it will be criminalized, that is not going to reverse. And it, it, on one level, it's supposed to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that – I'm no prophet. That doesn't mean we're living in the end times now. Maybe we are. I I don't know. It it, it could also initiate a revival, and then you know, a thousand years from now, we'll be having the same conversation. Who knows? Okay. So, but I'm not signing people up, you know, for persecution and, and and all that sort of thing. But you need to realize that this is another cycle that's been repeated. The church has been here before, and so the the question should be: How do we do what we're supposed to do? 
not for just our generation, but for the next generation and the generation after that. And the rough, the rough answer is, yes, we need to learn to think more critically, theologically. Okay, we need to take our culture seriously and be able to interact with it on a theological level. We need more scripture knowledge, all those things. Okay, yes, that's part of it. But the other part is we need to be willing to suffer. We need to take the idea seriously that this world is not our home. Now, I, I use a controversial illustration for this. You know, this, this, the world is not our home. What we're supposed to be about is advancing the kingdom of God where we are and, and building that foundation for the next generation. Here's my example of, of why, how we're not doing this and, and also how we could be doing this. My example is ISIS. If you're a member of ISIS, you literally get up every day and your first thought is, how do I further the agenda? What can I do today to prepare the way for the caliphate? What can I do today that will contribute in some way to this grand plan that Allah has us on? And when you go to bed at night, your last thought is, what am I going to do tomorrow? Again, to further this agenda. If we had Christians, masses of Christians that were just fixated and focused on what can I do today at home, in my job, no matter where I am, what can I do today to help bring someone into the kingdom of God and to forward the kingdom of God? Reconciling people to God, changing hearts and minds through the gospel. What can I do today that will accomplish that? And then before you go to bed, think, what am I going to do tomorrow to do that? If we had the same level of ideological commitment and mass that would honestly change the world. Yes. The thing is, we are distracted. We think that this world is our home, that this is what we're about. Our experiences in life on this planet, in, in our embodied existence, this is why we're here, you know, to, to like enjoy. And I'm not, I'm not a killjoy, you know, enjoy life. It's a gift. It's precious. But there's another reason why you're here. It's not just focused on having a good experience. And, and enjoying creation, as important those, as those things are. You are a piece of a, of a very large, very old plan. You are an important player. We're, we get so stinking fixated on, on God only being in the spectacular, God only working in the people that the public knows, God only working in, in the big churches, God only working in the public figures and the Christian celebrities. That's just bunk, okay? God is at work in the things that are unspectacular. Amen. God is at work in every believer's life, or at least wants to be. And God loves to do things under the radar because doing millions and millions of things under the radar gets a lot done. Wow, we could do a whole show on that statement alone. Well, in the waning moments, Michael, please do tell folks, give out your website for where they can find your books and your handiwork. Uh, if you go to my my homepage is dr as in doctor, msh dot com drmsh dot com, and that's again the nerve center. You can link out to my blogs. I have a I have a podcast, the Naked Bible podcast. We call it that because we don't worry about creeds and denominational distinctives. It's, we just try to focus on scripture, uh, just the text. That's what's important. Uh, so you can find the podcast. You can find the books. You know, the blogs, everything's there, drmsh.com. Excellent. Michael, thank you so much for your time on the program today. And I hope you will come back so I can talk to you about unseen 
realm. Fantastic book. I've read it. I'd love to have you back to talk about that book. Well, I'd love to. Love to. We'll just have to work out a time and we'll do that. Wonderful. Folks, that was Dr. Michael Heiser. The book is Reversing Hermon, subtitled Enoch, the Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. Again, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, his information is linked there today in the bio. We are out of time, but don't forget to like my Weekend Vigilante Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. All those social media icons are on my website, weekendvigilante.com, and we will see you next time. Good night, and God bless.